Well, one of the privilege, privileges that you have as the evening preacher is you get to pick the evening hymns. And so you may have noticed a theme in this evening's hymns centered on uh, the gospel and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We got to sing one of my favorite hymns in the hymnal, uh, I Greet Thee Who My Sure Redeemer Art. It was sung in Calvin's Geneva and it is just as beautiful today as it was then. Uh, this evening we're going to be beginning a new sermon series in the book of Galatians, so I invite you to turn there. Just a few words about what we will be doing. Uh, we are going to be preaching through this book as a staff. And so myself and Jason and David and Kurt, we will all be taking turns, but you will, you will get a steady diet of Galatians in the evenings. And I hope that will be an encouragement to you, and I hope that you will come and hear and uh, if you're at home this, this evening, tune in, because Galatians is one of the most important books in all of the New Testament. It uh, is a book that says much about the gospel and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this evening, I'm going to begin by reading for us the first nine verses. I'll be taking the first nine verses this week, and then we will move on from there. We'll probably be in the book of Galatians for at least several months, and I trust you will be blessed by it. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us this word. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts, that we might see what you have determined for us in your word, that we might know you better, that we might know more of what you have done, and that we may serve you in love, and in truth. This we ask in Christ's precious name. 
Amen. Galatians is a critically important book. Ironically, it's the first letter that Paul wrote. And in this letter, Paul sets straight the most important matter for Christians. The gospel. Paul is writing this letter to a church that he's founded, that to people he loves and whom he sees wandering from the truth of the gospel. He's writing it to people called the Galatians. And we see right away in here that the Galatians are a people who are in need of doctrine. You see this right in verse 1. Paul says that he's writing to them through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul can't get out of his first sentence before he mentions the resurrection. He wants them to understand that Jesus is risen. That Jesus is powerful today for them. Because you see, one of the things we will see in this book is that there is tussling and tugging back and forth over who will have power in the church. And Paul starts right out by telling them what real power is. It's Jesus, risen from the dead. You can't speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ without speaking about Christ himself. And so, again, in the very first sentence, Paul tells the Galatians not just about the resurrection, but about Jesus, who is the Christ, and in the same breath as God the Father. Jesus is equal with God. Now, we can write a theological treatise about this, but Paul puts it right before us in very simple words. He speaks of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Together, just as we know them, the triune God. And you see, the Galatians were tempted by those who denigrated the power of Jesus Christ. The attitude that we will see over and over again is, well, Jesus is good, but we're so glad you have Jesus, but you need more. And Paul wants us to see right from the very outset that Jesus is all and all. The other thing we see in these opening verses to the Galatians is the importance of justification by faith. You know, it's only the book of Galatians and the book of 1 Timothy where Paul skips his typical thanksgiving for the church. He tells them how thankful he is for them and how thankful for God's work in them and how thankful they're his partners in the gospel. Not here. Paul starts right out grabbing them by the coat lapels and says, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what the gospel is? You must listen to me. It's a matter not just of life and death, but eternal life and death. Now, this is the kind of man that Paul was. Paul was a hypocrite. He has been there, done that with the Judaizing thing. He's got the t-shirt that's probably now a rag in his closet that says, I know all the laws and I Judaize. He understands what it's like to be a slave to works. And he also was a persecutor of the church. So... He knows the difficulties that a church has gone through. He knows the attacks that come upon it. He knows those who try to undermine it because that was him. He's an outsider 
to these people. He brought the gospel in for them because the gospel is wider and broader than merely to the Jews. Well, that's who Paul was, but who he is now is a redeemed man who is not afraid to tell his story. It's not a coincidence that two of our hymns this evening were about the old story and tell me the story because Paul wants you to hear his story in this book. It's a story of grace. Well, what we see here, first and foremost, is the true gospel. That's the first thing I want us to see. Paul sets forth the true gospel, and the true gospel can be summed up in the phrase, God's work. The gospel is something that comes to us from God. It is the work of God for us. It is not something that we do. This is fundamental and foundational to the gospel. Paul starts this out where he says that he is an apostle. Now, you know what this word means, but I'll remind you. An apostle is someone who was sent by someone else. Paul is just the messenger. Paul is not the savior. He's not the problem solver. Paul tells us right in the very first few words that he has been sent and that he has been sent by God. He is a messenger of God. And it is God who desires the grace and peace of the Galatians. As much as Paul loves them, it is God who is at work here. Think about that in your own life and in your own family. Think in your mind's eye of someone you know that you long for them to know Jesus Christ. A spouse, a child, a parent, a neighbor. You pray for them faithfully. You love them. Your heart bleeds for them. You need to know that your love for them is but a pale reflection of the love of the Savior. As a matter of fact, the reason you have that love is because God has put it in your heart. The reason you desire their salvation is because God has put it in your heart. It is God who initiates. It is God who is at work. And Paul reminds us that the gospel is something that both the Father and the Son are involved with. We see this in verse 1. Jesus Christ and God the Father. And again in verse 3. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again in verse 4. Jesus who gave himself according to the will of our God and Father. You cannot separate out the work of the Father and the Son. And this is where I think we need to understand something that's a bit theological. There's a term called the covenant of redemption. And in recent years, it's come under some attack because people think that it's not really that important and they try to drive a wedge between the work of the Father and the work of the Son. But the covenant of redemption teaches us that in eternity past, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made a covenant, a pact to save a people. And the Father promised to send the Son and to equip the Son. And the Son promised to purchase a people by His work. And the Spirit promised to apply that redemption to a people and to bring them together. 
That's what Paul's hinting at here. It's a Trinitarian work of salvation. Now you may say, but pastor, I see a lot of the Father and the Son. Where's the Spirit? Well, when we leave this evening, read through the book of Galatians. The Spirit occurs over and over and over again. This is the work of the triune God. Now, notice what the true gospel tells us. That Jesus Christ was willing to be a sacrifice in order to purchase redemption. Mark chapter 10 tells us that Jesus didn't come to be served, but rather to serve. John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus laid down His own life of His own accord. Jesus is willing. He gave Himself. The gospel begins with God. I want to ask you if that's your message. Because I think far too often our gospel begins with ourselves. This is what I did. This is what I thought. This is where I was. The biblical gospel always begins with God. Now, the biblical gospel is not only initiated by God, it is a sacrificial work of God. We are told in verse 4 that Christ gave himself. Now this is Paul's shorthand way of speaking to us another theological doctrine, that of the substitutionary atonement. Now, that may sound like a lot, and I'm not going to give you a systematic lecture, but what you need to understand is that when Jesus gave himself, he put himself in our place. To put it graphically and simply, you should have hung on the cross and been tortured and died and gone to hell forever. That's what your sins deserve. That's what my sins deserve. But praise be to God. That Jesus gave himself. That he paid our debt. That he suffered our penalty. That we might be spared. That we might have grace. That's the gospel. But if Jesus gave himself, stop and think for a moment. How then could we contribute anything to our salvation? If the God-man gave himself... What right do we have to say, well, that's pretty good, Jesus, but I know that I need to do this, or I need to do that, or worse yet, I know that you need to do this, and you need to do that, because that's what's going on in Galatia. We have so-called teachers in the church holding others hostage and telling them that they need to finish the work of salvation. But Jesus gave, and Paul tells us, he gave himself. That's a description of the extent of what was given. He didn't just give him his time. He didn't just give his efforts. He didn't even just give his life. He gave himself for sinners. And that shows us that there is no sense in which we can be lost if Jesus has given himself for us. We are assured of our salvation. There is no need for any repeat of a sacrifice. And, and Paul knows this personally. He'll tell us this later in chapter 20. It's a verse that I, I'm sure many of you have memorized. Chapter 2, 
Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now listen. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I think you've heard me say this before, but I never tire of saying it. Martin Luther was fond of saying that the Bible is full of pronouns. If you look at Galatians 2.20, you need to put your name in the place of the me. Jesus didn't just die for the church. He didn't die for human flourishing. He didn't die for peace and harmony in the world. He died for sinners like me. He died for me. Can you say that? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith today, if you know the gospel, if God has come to you with that initiating power of the gospel, then you know that. That Jesus died for you. This is the difference between what theologians call saving faith and mere assent. It's the difference between knowing a fact and living your life based on the fact. You've probably heard this analogy or illustration used before. A man comes up to one of these rickety bridges across a chasm made of what looks to be rotting wood. And he looks to another man and he says, you know, by looking at this and taking in the engineering and the type of wood that this is, I believe that this wood and this bridge would hold a man if he crosses it. That's a big difference between that and crossing the bridge putting your life in the hands of what you know. Jesus gave and he gave himself, and he gave himself because of our sins, Paul says. Christ had no need to die. Never was any sin found in him. There was no guile in his mouth. He was perfect in every way. He kept God's law in thought, word, and deed all the days of his life here on earth. And yet, he died for our sins. And the emphasis here is on the unmerited favor that we receive from Jesus. He gave himself for our sins. So what does this gospel do for us? God comes to us with this gospel. He tells us that Jesus has given himself, that he has initiated that he has brought salvation. And what does that salvation look like? Paul tells us. First and foremost, it is for the forgiveness of sins. He gave himself for our sins. That forgiveness comes from Christ. When Jesus died for our sins, it brought about forgiveness for us. There is no record to our account. Jesus has wiped the slate clean. And more than that, it's not as if Jesus has given us a fresh start. Have you ever done that with your children? You've had a particularly bad week, a particularly bad day. There's squabbling, there's fighting, there's problems. And you throw up your hands and you say, okay, wait a minute. We're starting all over again right now. Everybody, clean slate. I don't want to hear what your sister did yesterday or your brother did the day before. We're starting clean right now, and we're going to go forward. That sounds really good, doesn't it? 
until we realize what sinners we are. Jesus didn't just give us a clean slate. Jesus gave us righteousness. That great transaction in which our sins were placed on Christ and Christ's righteousness is placed upon us. The Bible gives us that image of the white robes of Jesus, of his righteousness being put on us. Forgiveness of sins. Paul also tells us that there is deliverance that comes to us. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. The word to there is a purposeful word. It's a Greek preposition that tells you there is purpose here. The reason he gave himself was to deliver us, to accomplish that. There's a causal connection there. And this should make sense to us because it is sin that keeps us in bondage. It is sin that weighs us down. And the gospel is so much more than just forgiveness. It is forgiveness, but it's also deliverance. We are delivered not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And we are in this deliverance, we are rescued. This is a very striking word here, deliver, as Paul uses it. It's the only time that Paul uses this word. But thankfully, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to help us see exactly what Paul means. And it will not surprise you, I think, that the first time that this word is used in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 7. And it's describing Joseph and how he was rescued from the pit. How he was delivered from bondage. And then a bit later, we see it in Acts chapter 12, verse 11. You remember Peter is in prison, and there's this marvelous scene where the angels deliver Peter. And Peter comes back. He's been rescued. He comes back to the church, and Rhoda comes to the door, and she tells them in broken words, because she can't get it out, that Peter's here. And they say, calm down, young lady. We know you're under some stress. You're speaking foolishness. And then they open and they see that Peter has indeed been rescued. It's used of Paul himself in Acts chapter 23. When Paul is rescued from prison, he's delivered. And this deliverance is for something. It's for our obedience. It enables us to live in accordance with God's will. Because Paul will say over and over again in Romans chapter 12 and Titus chapter 2 that we are delivered to be zealous for good works. We are delivered for the purpose of good works. Good works flow out of this deliverance. God has brought the gospel to us so that we might obey Him. This order is crucial. If you mess that up, you're a heretic. Deliverance, justification, grace first, obedience, good works follows. If we put good works and obedience first, we will never get off the treadmill. You can never do enough to be certain of your salvation. The gospel delivers us, it delivers us for good works, and it delivers us from something, from this present evil age. 
The way Paul uses this phrase, it reminds us that this world is not what it's supposed to be. You see, Paul doesn't say the evil world, the wicked world that is worthless. He says this present evil age. Right now, this age is marked by evil and sin and the fall. But it was not so in the beginning. And praise be to God, it will not be in glory. Our hope is not in our circumstances before us. Our hope is that we will be delivered from this present evil age and the evil age will be conquered and dissipate by the power of God in the gospel. Our calling in this time is to be different. This is another aspect of the gospel that we see, that the gospel makes you different. You stand out from others. You're a city on a hill. You are salt. You are light. We are changed by the power of God that we might stand as a beacon for the gospel. God is establishing his kingdom through the gospel. We see this in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil, we pray, along with Paul here in Galatians chapter 1. But what comes after that? For yours is the kingdom. We pray, we pray for the Lord to complete the work that he started. To bring the gospel to full fruit. To see that Jesus would be Lord of all. And this is one of the great mysteries of the gospel. It's the sense in which it is already, but not yet. The gospel is real to us, but it has not brought full fruition. I've used this illustration before. I can't think of a better one. If you know your history of the world, you remember World War II. And you remember that one of the most significant events in all of the war was June 6, 1944, D-Day. If you don't know history well, you won't know that D-Day, every time there was an invasion of Sicily, of Italy, of France, of the Balkans, there was a D-Day. D-Day was the day of the invasion. But this was the D-Day. And the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy. And they pushed their way inland. Now, if you also know your history, you will know that the war continued on for another year. The victory was not consummated. Hitler didn't quit. Berlin didn't fall on June 7th. But there is a sense in which we, looking back at that now, say the war was over. That was it. There was no way that Germany was going to come back from this. It was just a matter of fulfillment. The cross is our D-Day. Satan is defeated. The gospel is established and the kingdom will reign. We just wait for the final fulfillment of that. The gospel is the work of God that is the will of God. The gospel is not a tragedy. Because if sometimes people look at the gospel and they wonder why Jesus had to suffer and die. 
why God had to see Jesus' suffering to be convinced to forgive sinners. And that's a wrong-headed view of the gospel because the Father sent the Son. That's what Paul tells us. God's love was not purchased at the cross. God's love brought about the cross. God loved sinners. And so He sent the Son to purchase redemption. This is the true gospel. Well, then Paul begins to tell us in verses 7 and 8 about a false gospel. A gospel that distorts the truth. And we need to be aware of this so that we are not taken in. He tells us in verse 6, I am ashamed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This false gospel is different in every way. It is different in its emphasis. Paul's emphasis, we see in Acts chapter 13, as we read the story of Paul planting these churches in Galatia, is the glory of God and the good of the Galatians and the building up of the church. Well, what does the false gospel have as its emphasis? We'll see over and over again in this book, the emphasis of the so-called Judaizers is their own glory. Paul tells us that in chapter 4. Verse 17, he writes, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you may make much of them. They're worried about their own comfort. We see this in chapter 5, verse 12. They're tearing down the church rather than building it up. We see this also in chapter 5, verse 26. They're provoking each other, envying one another, becoming conceited. They have a completely different emphasis. And that shows us that their gospel is false. They also claim a completely different authority. They seemed to come from the Apostle James. We see this in chapter 2, verse 20. But they really didn't. Because if you read Acts chapter 15, verse 24, you will see that James speaks against everything that they push here in Galatia. James himself speaks out against making circumcision a part of the gospel. And they're so eager to put down Paul. They mock Paul. They treat him as someone who doesn't know the truth of God's word. They want to cast doubt on the people of God, so that they will run to them for help. Paul says in verse 7, there are some who trouble you. Now this word is a very interesting word. It doesn't just mean bother. It means to cause fear in someone else. Two instances of which we see this in the Gospels are when Jesus is walking on water, the disciples are cast into fear. They are troubled. This exact word, it strikes them at the heart. And, and that's what the false gospel is doing in Galatia. It's upturning people's confidence in their life in Christ. 
and they are fearful and afraid. And the gospel is not a word of fear. It's a word of love. And they use the authority of the church rather than God's authority. They say they know best. Don't listen to what the Apostle Paul tells you. This gospel is different. And perhaps the most dangerous thing about it is it's very plausible. Have you noticed how Satan brings his attacks? In the Garden of Eden, he doesn't say to Eve, you shouldn't listen to God at all. God's dumb. You can't believe anything God says. Now, how does Satan attack God's word? He says, did God really say that? Did you catch that right? Are you sure you understand exactly what's going on here? And that's what they're doing here. You could almost imagine Paul's opponents speaking to the Galatians and saying, well, you know, Paul was good as far as he goes. He's good basic math. But if you want to learn algebra and trigonometry, you've got to come to us. We know the really difficult, important things. Paul, he's just a beginner. And on top of this, they, they claim new truth and new revelation. And this is where we can fall prey to it ourselves in our day and age. There are people all the time trying to add to the gospel. They claim new revelations. They claim new truth. And whether they come to you and they say the gospel is about social justice, or the gospel is about wealth, or the gospel is about healing. They're adding to the gospel. And it's different. It's false. And what they're doing is they are actually distorting the gospel into the opposite of what it is. That's what Paul tells us here. He says, they are turning to a different gospel. They're distorting it. And what this means, in verse 7, they are distorting the gospel of Christ. It's In Acts chapter 2, verse 20, we read about the sun being turned to darkness. It's the same word here. The sun is distorted into darkness. Light becomes darkness. Sight becomes blackness. That's what Paul's saying here. The false gospel takes the true gospel and turns it into what it is not, into its opposite. And this can happen to you and to me with very good-sounding things when we make them the gospel. I have to tell you that family values are not the gospel. I love family values. I love families. I love happy homes. But that's not the gospel. Personal fulfillment is not the gospel. You should live lives of fulfillment and joy and happiness. But that is not the gospel. Morality is not the gospel. All of these things flow from the gospel. And when we make them the gospel, the irony is we lose the gospel and we lose them as well. We're left with nothing. This gospel that's false causes sinners to desert, to leave true doctrine. Paul says, 
that there really is no different gospel. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly desert him who called you and are turning to a different gospel. But then he says something that's almost confusing, and he says, not that there is another one. You're turning to another one, but there's really not another one. Well, what does that mean? He's saying, it's really no gospel at all. It's not a different Christ. It's no Christ. It's not from God. It's from Satan. These are Satan's tactics. Because Satan doesn't come boldly. He deceives. How does Paul describe Satan in his letters? He calls him an angel of light. I think oftentimes the reason we miss Satan's devices is we expect them to come dripping with oil and dirt and scum. And so we would say, oh, I don't want any of that. But Satan comes as an angel of light. He seeks to deceive because in deception he finds victory. To go back to our D-Day story. Again, if you know a bit about history, you will know that the Allies landed at Normandy. But you will also know that everyone knew they were going to land at the Pas de Calais. That was the shortest stretch of the channel. It was the easiest place to get ships across and to land. And everyone knew that Patton, the great American general, would lead that invasion. Do you remember what the Allies did? They sent out messages in code that they knew the Germans had already broken. Describing Patton and his army and where they would land and the timing. And they even built fake tanks and planes out of wood and cloth. And the Germans fell for the trap. Because when they landed at Normandy, the commanders... The German commanders at Normandy sent out, send us reinforcements, we have an invasion. And the German higher up said, no, 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 no. The invasion's not coming at Normandy, it's coming at the Pas de Calais. We can't afford to send you any reinforcements. We have to keep them back for the real invasion when Patton comes. You see, deception undermines our ability to stand for the truth. It causes us to abandon the truth. And to abandon or leave grace. Paul tells them that they have been called by grace in verse 6. But now they are in danger of leaving. And this is a very real danger. He picks it up again in chapter 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works? Of the law or by hearing with faith. They're leaving the grace that has come to them. And Paul doesn't want this for them. Because the implication here is that those who follow a false gospel will be under God's curse. And it happens so quickly. Do you see that in verse 6? Why does it happen so quickly? Because it's in our nature to want to take credit for our salvation. And that manifests itself in our leaving the gospel. Well, there is a true gospel. And there is a false gospel that Paul warns about. 
But Paul ends this section with a defense of the true gospel, calling us to it. Paul is not afraid to condemn. Do you see how he speaks in verses 8 and 9? This would not be kind speech today. There are those even within the church that will say, you shouldn't speak this harshly. We should have words of love and we should try to just encourage others. Could you imagine the, the Apostle Paul standing up in a presbytery or general assembly meeting and saying, if you teach anything other than my gospel, may you be accursed. They would at least take him out for some therapy. You see, Paul is not afraid to condemn the false gospel. He's not afraid to deny pluralism. That is the word of the day in America. You can believe in Jesus as long as Jesus is the same as Muhammad, is the same as Buddha, and everyone can believe what they want to believe. And ironically, in our progress to the 21st century, we are in exactly the same place that the Galatians were in in the 1st century. Do you know that the great attack on Christians in Paul's day was that they didn't believe in enough gods. It was not that they believed in God and Jesus Christ. It was that they didn't allow for pluralism, for all roads to lead to heaven, for we're all going to the same place kind of theology. We have to remember that a no truth leads to no God. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them. And Paul's not even worried about his own authority. He says, but even if we, even if I came to you with a gospel different than what I came before, let me be accursed. <coughs> He's not grounding the gospel in his authority. He wants you to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And Paul is very quick to show the way of truth. He says that life is found in the true gospel. And you'll notice one thing about the verbs here in verses 8 and 9. They are present tense verbs. What that means is, is Paul is leaving room for repentance. If this is happening now, if someone is preaching now, if you are receiving this now, you can still repent. You don't need to believe this. You can still go back to the old, old story. You can still go back to the true gospel. Paul is calling them back. Well, how do we follow Paul and protect ourselves? I want to give you three last things to think about as we close. First, the Bible calls upon us to pray without ceasing. Do you pray for the gospel in your life, in your family's life, in our neighborhoods, in our nation? As we go to the Lord and pray about the gospel, the gospel will take tight hold of our hearts. The second thing we need to do is we need to read our Bibles. We need to be good Bereans. We need to be encouraged and strengthened by the truth of God's Word. Now, if you thought I was going to give you some sort of difficult, magical, 
12-step program. I'm sorry to disappoint. It's really quite simple. Believe, read, pray. Trust the Lord. And that will lead us to this final thing. Cling to Jesus Christ. Don't ever let go of Jesus. Because it's Jesus' grace, Paul tells us in verse 6. It's Jesus' gospel, Paul tells us in verse 7. And it's Jesus' work, Paul tells us in verse 4. You can never have enough of Jesus. Go to Him today. The old saying is true. Jesus saves. Let's pray.